Welcome to the Circle 31 Podcast. I'm your host, Ayana Robinson-Dixon, and on today's episode, I'll be speaking with former investment banker turned author, strategist, and public communicator, Rosa Wong. Rosa has led programs that subsequently opened over 6 million digital bank accounts for low-income individuals in parts of Africa and India. Now, here is my conversation with Rosa Wong. Okay, well, it's great great to be here. Uh, I'm Rosa Wong. I'm an author and a public communicator. Um, Up until about a year ago, I was the global director uh, of digital financial services for an organization called Opportunity International. Uh, That work took me around the world to developing parts of the world where rural communities are living with uh, very low incomes. And I had the privilege to work there to try to introduce the mobile cell phone, uh, particularly to groups of rural women. Um, And so I'm really happy to talk about that. I'd covered uh, some of the things that happened in my book called Strong Connections, uh, Stories of Resilience from the Far Reaches of the Mobile Phone Revolution. And I'm joining you from my home, which is in Oxford, England which is a bit removed from where some of the field work is. Well, Rosa, we're so happy to have you today as a guest on the Circle 31 podcast. Thank you. So you mentioned, um, you know, you gave us a little bit about your background. I'd like for us to get into more of that today. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's start by talking about your book, and that'll help us navigate through our conversation. So you wrote a book called Strong Connections. Um, Can you give us more detail on the inspiration uh, behind putting your experiences in a book? Yes, it started about five years or so before I began writing. And what I found was that when I would give presentations about the work, um, the more that I talked about the stories, particularly the stories of the women that I had met, and really put a face you know, to the the kinds of work that we were doing and allowed people to connect. I found that people would really sort of grasp on to these stories and they would remember them. And it really started having much more traction in terms of people understanding the work, um, understanding what we were trying to do to help empower uh, poor people around the world. And it really helped them to connect in a much more meaningful human way. And so I start. I really changed the way that I began communicating about it um, and really shifted in terms of talking about stories. And I had quite a number of those. And so as I started to write them down um, and to give more in terms of the storytelling, I had the idea to sort of bring all of that together uh, and bring some of the themes together. And that's what really resulted in the book. Can you, um, still keeping the thought of the book in mind, I wanted you to please explain to our listeners what Opportunity International is. Yeah, so Opportunity International is an organization that was founded over 50 years ago. It was one of the early organizations that had the idea that you can give a small, a very small scale loan uh, to a person um, who's living in poverty, and they can use that as capital to build up a business 
and really work their way out of poverty and really, uh, you know, expand the business, provide for their families, uh, help to educate their children and really have a turnaround um, in their in their lives. Um, Opportunity is a Christian mission organization. And so it's comprised of people who have gathered together uh, because of their belief um, that we're here to love and serve the poor and that it is Christ's call uh, in order to do so. And we worked in you know, many countries around the world. Uh, the specific field work that I was doing were, was in parts of Africa, mm-hmm. uh, such as Malawi, Ghana, Uganda, Kenya, and Tanzania, and also in parts of rural India. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, I'd like you to talk to us about how you believe mobile phone technology makes an impact on the lives of those who are in extreme poverty. Can you give us some insight on that? Yeah, one of the things that I think many people notice, in especially if it's their first time, say, to go to Africa, to a place like Malawi, um, is just how many mobile cell phones are around and how many people are constantly on their phones. And I think most of us, you know, use our phones constantly just on a continuous basis. It's how we stay in touch with people. We conduct a lot of our business by phone. We conduct a lot of our social lives um, and various things. And it is really not different uh, than the circumstance of someone living in a place like Malawi. A phone for this individual enables them, say, to avoid or or, uh, not need a very costly bus trip or a very long walk, maybe an hour or two hours uh, to have to go into town. It enables them to run their businesses better. So, you know, we worked with like clothing entrepreneurs, we worked with food entrepreneurs, uh, people who ran um, street stalls, uh, selling food and things. And this, the phone allowed them to call their suppliers. Um, It allowed them to check on what prices were in say the neighboring village uh, so they could make sure they were getting a fair price for things. And it really had this full I would call it empowering experience of bringing information um, and the ability to be connected um, in in various places. And there's it's hard to kind of overstate the impact in a place where many other services are not very good. Um, So, you know, where here a lot of people may have taken up a phone or, or been hesitant to take up a phone because it's like they have a fixed line phone. They have other ways to communicate. Um, but for many people in very low income areas, the phone really is their gateway to information and to better services and things. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we were doing at Opportunity was also to connect financial services. Mm-hmm. So the ability for a person to have a savings account, uh, to put away a bit of money, and to be able to access the information, whether it's to check their balance, uh, potentially to repay a loan, or to transfer some money to a family member. And it was um, that work in terms of seeing how you could integrate financial services uh, with something like the phone that I thought was quite powerful and, and encompasses many of the stories in the book. Mm-hmm. And I, one thing as you were, you know, speaking, one thing I was thinking about is, you know, I, you have met so many people in, in your experiences and um, women in particular, I'd like to talk about the women that you have encountered. Had you found any similarities between yourself and the women that you were meeting, you had met, um, you know, in your time and service and what were those similarities? Can you share that with us? I found uh, 
both a number of similarities and then a number of of sort of you know shocking differences i think i really felt that i did connect with women and also with the circumstances that the women were in that really brought to me in a, in a very profound way. I've always been, you know, having worked in um, things like investment banking a long time ago um, in areas like technology, I've always been in areas that I would consider to be male dominated. Um, oftentimes the only woman in the room or, or one of very few women uh, in the room. But I would say it was many of the circumstances that I observed um, when I was working and, and working with these women that really brought home one is on a very human level. There were, were many, many similarities. I think the main thing was this commonality of both um, ambition and purpose. Uh, so I saw in these women a real strong desire to create a better uh, life for their children in particular. So, you know, saving or being able to put aside money for their child's education was by far the number one priority mm -hmm. uh, that these women had. And it was really a strong motivator. And you could see the pride when, you know, the child would come home from school and had won some award or had done really well in school. And, and you see that all over the world. And so that was was quite encouraging. Um, we found, a, you know, a number of the women also um, uh, were women of faith. And it was a very strong part of, of their identity and why they... Uh, took part with the community and other things. Um, and so those were, you know, really strong similarities. And I think people uh, see a lot of commonality with people around the world. Mm -hmm. But it was in sort of observing some of the consequences, particularly of, of poverty, that made me aware um, on a very personal level, uh, just how privileged uh, you know, I've been in terms of having a father that was supportive of uh, both my advanced education as as well as sort of career ambitions, um, having a husband that's very supportive, being able to uh, to choose my own husband and things like that, that that a lot of these women were that because of their cultural circumstances and other circumstances, that was not uh, their uh, sort of situation and really um, appreciating much more uh, in terms of, you know, the, the circumstances that I have and the ability to sort of advocate uh, for these women. Mm -hmm. Is there a particular um, situation or instance that you can remember that has stood out to you the most when we're talking about women in their, you know, um, in different parts of the world that you've traveled to in their extreme poverty and disadvantage? Is there something in particular that, that that just logs your memory? Yeah, there's several scenes that really stick out, one of which was um, when I was in the city of Bhopal in India, and we went to see a group of rural women. And, and I was there with the leader of this local microfinance organization. And she was... Um, my translator and sort of guide and and also headed the organization. So I remember she asked the men that had accompanied us to to leave. Um, and this meant that the women felt much freer to talk. Uh, we all sat on sort of the dirt floor together um, and had sort of a two hour conversation, really to get a sense of what were the circumstances the women were in. Um, and also how ready were they to take up some digital services that we had. So this is what I would call a scouting trip, uh, really to understand where the women were and, and what would be feasible um, within the next year or so in terms of work 
talking with them. Mm-hmm. And what I remember was um, getting a sense that one is that all of the women did have some form, informal form of saving. And so they would, you know, really try to squirrel away money. So the equivalent of sort of money under a mattress, so they would hide it in the garden, they would hide it, uh, you know, amongst stacks of clothing and things. And they were really uh, quite clever in terms of their way of doing this. And that resulted in having an even greater emphasis in terms of having avenues of formal savings so that uh, the women wouldn't lose um, all of their money. But I remember when we turned to asking about, you know, do you have a phone? Mm -hmm. Um, And only two out of 14 of the women uh, indicated they had a phone. And I thought, okay, that, that seems quite low, even though this is a low income place. Um, I had been to other places and I was expecting about half. So I thought this was too low. Uh, so I kept asking further questions about that. And it it came about that all of the husbands of these women had phones. So the entire area, even though it was uh, very low income, and the husbands also had um, literacy challenges and so forth, but the husbands would have the phone. And I realized that this caused quite an issue because um, if the husband say, worked as a day laborer or something and uh, worked away from home during the day, he would take the phone in his pocket and leave. And it would leave the woman without a um, way to communicate during the entire time that he was there. And so we went into some extensive detail about, you know, I asked them questions like, how would you call your sister? Because I wanted to make sure I wasn't sort of uh, getting things wrong. And I knew that these were circumstances where many of these women would be married into a village far away from where they grew up. Mm-hmm. Uh, they could be quite separate from, say, their parents or their sister. Um, and so making an emergency phone call might might be um, something that could be quite necessary. And many of the women really lack the confidence to be able to make a call themselves. They said they would have to ask for help. And it was... Um, Those uh, conversations that really resulted in uh, one of the programs that we were running in parts of rural India, uh, which I would call sort of assisted digital um, services, and and that's where there is an agent or human being. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we invested heavily in terms of recruiting women as agents so that there could be women who were better educated and more technically adept and they would be able to assist uh, some of these other women. And it really gave me a sense that, um, especially in these village areas, that the women had very strong social bonds. And that was one of the reasons that they were able to, um, you know, despite very, very sort of modest circumstances, were able to maintain businesses, were able to raise their children, uh, and so forth. And if they had Um, difficulties, they would have, say, another village member or someone help them. Um, And that really developed into what I call the the assisted digital program, which was a network of women agents uh, in the area. And as you're talking, one one thing I wanted to ask is, can we delve deeper into the importance of women being empowered in their communities and what that means to the social structure as a whole, when women are empowered, when women are informed, when women are given access um, to be more um, independent and, and, and earn their own income? What does that do to the family structure and the community as a whole? Yeah, this was a really interesting part of of the work that we observed. You know, when we would ask the women, like, why, what difference does the loan make? 
Um, as I mentioned, most of the women said yes, they were dedicating it for their children. They they really wanted to see their children uh, getting educated, um, you know, living better lives and so forth. But virtually all of the women said that it improved their status in the household, that their husbands respected them more, they had more of a voice. Um, and one of the things that I think was also a really big learning for me was that when we would ask the women, you know, like, can you use the phone or, or, or um, attempt to do a transaction, that a lot of the women starting out lacked confidence. It wasn't that, um, it, you know, even if they had a phone available, they might hesitate uh, in terms of navigating, say, a menu or trying something new. Um, and it was really an issue. And and it was a little bit challenging for me because, you know, I, I grew up in, in the States, in, in America. And I think <clears throat> children in America are uh, raised mostly to have a good sense of self and to have self-confidence and to try out new things. And so to encounter what is beyond just a technical issue, but really is an issue of confidence, really did, uh, again, make us think about um, how do we then approach this problem and how to sort of change the script. And what I found was that a lot of the telecom companies or a lot of the corporations that are working, while they do offer good services, they would often try to train people on the mechanics, on the technical part, like this is a menu, this is how you navigate. And, and again, many of, of these women did have um, literacy challenges because they didn't have the opportunity to go to, to much school at all. Um, but what we found was oftentimes these women needed more of what a sense of reassurance. Hmm. Um, so what to do if you run into difficulty or to say, you know, don't worry if the connection drops, um, you're not going to lose your money. Um, or if you need help, um, this is a number or this is someone you can talk to. Um, and, and we would find in these groups that uh, you people would obviously know who had sort of slightly better education or was more adept and they would have to take a role. Um, and, the, you know, as they understood, they would take a role in terms of helping. So it was like, oh, yes, if you run into to difficulty, go see Mary. She's actually able to do this. And what we found was that as the women gained confidence, they gained confidence in terms of being um, almost their own agent of change within these areas. Mm -hmm. So as they became empowered, uh, they saw uh, just took it upon themselves to help other women uh, to be a resource and um, and also to be an, a source of encouragement. So I think they would they would know better than anyone else. Okay, why is someone intimidated, uh, say, to try a new service? Why might they need to be um, sort of reassured? Uh, and I think these are things that are a little bit nuanced, but I really do think made a difference in terms of our ability to impact uh, the numbers of women that that took up these services, uh, but also the quality of services that were received. Rosa, I'm sitting here thinking um, about your transition from investment banking yes. to what you've been doing. And so can you help us understand why you made that transition into serving the way that you're serving now? It was, um, I would say it wasn't a immediate kind of thing. It was, it was somewhat of a gradual process. Um, I felt that within investment banking, I had learned, you know, the things that I could learn. I'd um, had the good fortune to work in some very interesting places to have traveled and to have seen a lot of the world. 
But I think it was uh, a, a common thing that a lot of people come to once they've had some years of experience of saying, asking themselves, am I making an impact? Am I really making a difference? Um, and also at the same time, seeing how much uh, need is in the world mm -hmm. um, and how many people sort of need that. So I came upon, uh, so I you know, made the decision to leave investment banking and I was recruited by a friend actually into the world of, of um, social entrepreneurship or, or the ability to use kind of business methods or business techniques towards solving some of these deep problems like poverty, like people living in illiteracy, like women who need to be empowered more. And it was a gradual kind of thing. Um, in my book, I call myself an accidental technologist uh, <laughs> because that was, uh, it was, it's all self-taught. Um, and uh, and I, I would encourage people not to be as afraid to try different things or to work on things that are that seem sort of um, not exactly in the field where they have experience. Um, but it was, you know, and, and the work um, with greater impact and with greater service has been much harder because you don't have the layers of yeah. of sort of um, people to kind of assist you the way that that uh, was there in investment banking. Um, but it's certainly you can definitely see the impact um, and you can tie it to a purpose. Um, and so I would say from that standpoint, uh, I've never thought about returning to investment banking. Um, and uh, and it's something that I would uh, strongly encourage people to to give some thought to. So your book, Strong Connections, um, where could our listeners purchase a copy of that? So Strong Connections is available um on uh, on places like Amazon or other resellers um, uh, who who have books, um, it's on my website. So uh, all of the different places to order, uh, and it is available in both paperback form and also uh, in the ebook, in the electronic book. Um, and it covers, you know, the the content of it covers uh, the period of about two thousand and eight to about two thousand and eighteen mm -hmm. uh, in great detail, but is brought. Um, pretty much up to the publication date, uh, including sort of wrestling with the pandemic and other things. What do you hope that our, that readers will take and grasp once they read your book? So I go a little bit into this. You know, I had great ambitions when I thought about writing and the whole process of writing really did surprise me. Um, it surprised me that how emotional I think it was and recounting the stories of the women so I would say what I really hope is that um, people can connect with the stories that are there and can connect more with the um, issues that some of these women are, are dealing with and a better understanding, I, I think, of humanity. And I think if they're able to connect better um, and, and they're able to have some emotional resonance with, with the stories that are there, then I think that has served you know, the purpose uh, that I really wanted to to write and and really sort of uh, bring bring life to these stories. Because one of the things that, that really struck me as I was writing is that the overwhelmingly, the women that we were working with um, are not literate. And so they are not able to write their own stories. And that's why, you know, people talk about, well, um, like the history is written by the victors. 
and the stories are written by you know the scribes and the writers um so in some sense for me this this set of stories is a tribute to all of the women that I've met and a way to honor them and a way to have their stories as part of the written record. Before we met, um, Rosa, I asked you to share with me a um, one of your favorite scriptures, um, and you gave me Matthew chapter 5, <clears throat> verses 14 through 16, and I'll read that. It says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Can you share with us why that scripture is significant to you? I think for me and and for quite a lot of, of reading uh, from the Gospels is that I find it inspirational. Mm -hmm. And when you're trying to relate some of the things about why do we do the things we do and why do we kind of, you know, because a lot of it is very ordinary, <laughs> um, but to relate it to a greater purpose. Um, and that's that for me is the inspiration Mm. behind a lot of the gospels and that's that's what i get when i when i hear as i heard you uh read that passage uh that to me is is what this is all about that is beautiful rosa i'd love for our listeners to be able to visit your website uh, can you give us that that your link your web address what is your website address uh yes my website it's my name so it's uh rosawong.com it's r-o-s-a-w-a-n-g um, and it should also lead to other links, uh, such as social media and so forth. But the and the links to the book can be found on the website, um, as well as links to you know various things. So I'll put the podcast link once this is available on there. Okay, Rosa, do you have any final thoughts or words that you'd like to leave our listeners? Um, I would just say thank you and, and thank you for all the people that have sort of reached out and read about this because um, for an author to have other people kind of read and engage with your work is, uh, is such an honor and a privilege. Mm -hmm. Well, we, it's an honor for us to have you um, as a guest today on the Circle 31 podcast and we want to um, applaud you and thank God for everything that you have done and what you continue to do to empower um, women and to empower those um, who have been overlooked um, by some. So we thank you so much for giving people hope and giving them tools to improve their lives and the lives of their families. So thank you so much. Thank you. If today's episode was a blessing to you, visit our website at circle31internationalwomensministry.org to follow our podcast, listen to past episodes, and to read our blog. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Thank you for joining us today. <music>